Good to be with you again, Hope Church. It's always a joy for me to drive out here to Smithfield. I love that ride coming down Route 10. Um, it's better than Route 460 these days. Have you been down 460 lately? Anybody gotten a ticket down 460? Let's just confess and raise our hands. Yeah. Dang it. I hate it when I'm held accountable like that. I tried to ask myself this morning when I was driving here, I just got it in the mail this, uh, this week, 100 bucks, right, through that work zone is there. Um, why did I get so mad? And I thought to myself, you know, most of the time I speed. I mean, <laughs> and then they catch me one time, so why am I so mad? <laughs> you know, it doesn't really make sense, does it? But anyway, there it is. I'm not going down 460 for a long time. Finding your Bibles this morning, would you please, John chapter 13, John, the Gospel of John, chapter 13. <clears throat> I'm going to read the first 17 verses of John 13. <clears throat> would you follow along as I read? <clears throat> now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your t Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. My son, Adam, <clears throat> was diagnosed with lymphoma in 2012. He was 32 years old at the time. He had been experiencing some pain in his back and his side. He didn't know what it was. He went to the doctor. The doctor couldn't figure out what it was. They ran all these tests. And then they did a scan, and there was cancer in lots of his lymph nodes in his abdomen area. It was a 
rough year for the Alford family. Like it is for everybody who goes through something like this. No doubt many of you have gone through something like this. I vividly remember the day that we went to the doctor to, deter, to find out if it's cancer or not. We'd been praying for a long time, no, Lord, please, Lord, let it not be cancer or anything but that. And I remember vividly going to the doctor's office, sitting there, watching my son's face when he said it was cancer. The first thing I wanted to say to my son was, I love you, son. For some reason, that was the first thing that just came to my mind. Boom! I wanted to say it. Why is that what we want to say to someone, someone we care about, Right at the beginning, when we know they're facing something really hard and devastating, why, if we all discovered that we only had five minutes to say all we wanted to say, why is it? (laughs) Almost every phone, is it not true, would be used to call other people to fumble over the words, I love you. Love has that kind of power, doesn't it? (laughs) We yearn and long to be loved, don't we? Blake has built the service around the love of God for us this morning. I'm so thankful for that. We long and yearn to be loved. God has wired us that way. We want to be loved, and we are wired and made to love others as well. God has made us that way. And love is at the heart of the Christian faith. It is the engine that drives the whole thing, that pulls the whole train. It is the love of God. God is love. And it's at the heart of this gospel of John's. No other verse better summarizes this entire book than the justly famous 316. You've heard it a lot. It almost just kind of washes over us without touching us much anymore. But it should touch us very deeply. This is how God loved the world. He gave his only son, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have life. That's the message this gospel is all about. Jesus comes to reveal this love of God. John tells us that right at the beginning of the gospel, no one has ever seen God, but Jesus has come to put him on display, and he comes to put this on display primarily, that God is a God of love, and he loves his people, and that's why he gave his son. This gospel is a gospel of love. He comes to give us true, abundant life so that we might love. This love, which Jesus made known, is also the kind of love, listen now, that we are, you and I are to make known. It comes to us, and we're called to make it known. In our passage today, we're going to see that our Lord calls upon us to love other people the way he loved us in Jesus. That's what we're called to, my friend. To serve other people the way he served us. To humble ourselves for the sake of others the way he humbled himself for our sake. That's what John 13 in this episode is all about. Up to this point, John has portrayed Jesus as performing seven signs, these miracles that all point to the kind of life that Jesus has come to give us. He turns water into wine. He heals a young boy and a crippled man and gives sight to a blind man. 
He feeds 5,000 with a few loaves and fish. He walks on water. And he even raises a man, a friend of his, from the dead who's been in the tomb four days. All of this, all these signs point to the life, the wholeness of life God has come to give us. This wholeness that consists of whole bodies and whole souls, whole people all together. That's what the signs are all about. But now in chapter 13, we turn a corner. No longer is our Lord engaging the crowds with the signs. Now what he's doing in chapter 13 is engaging specifically his disciples, namely the 12 men. He's getting them ready for what's about to happen the very next day. And what's about to happen is Jesus is going to be crucified. And they will not be able to get their minds around it. And they will be completely disoriented. And they're going to be lost for a while. Having no idea what in the world is this plan all about. So Jesus is seeking to get them ready for that. The climax of all that he's come to do. His death, his crucifixion, and then his resurrection. And rather than launching to a theological lecture about the meaning of his death, Jesus doesn't do that here. Rather than do that, this is what he does. He acts out in dramatic fashion its meaning before it happens. He's going to act it out. He washes his disciples' feet. This event is just charged with great symbolic significance. Jesus is trying to show them and show us as we read this account what he's up to, what's going to happen the very next day when he is crucified on a Roman cross. It's the washing of the feet that point in that direction. Just to get them ready a bit, it's going to be such a shock. It's going to devastate them. The feet washing is also going to shock them. Pointing to something even greater is going to shock them. The first church I pastored was a church in Indiana. I was still in seminary. It was my last, my last year. The Lord and his grace provided a, a church for uh, me to pastor there. It was called Dutchtown Brethren Church. Dutchtown was the name of the little community. It was located in, uh, in Indiana, north central Indiana. In Dutchtown Brethren Church, like all Brethren Churches, perhaps some of you have belonged to Brethren Churches in the past. I don't know. We practiced feet washing. We did it, did it twice a year. We'd come together as a church on a Sunday night. We'd have what they called a love feast, a meal, and then we had the Lord's Supper, and then we had feet washing. I'd never done that before. In the two years that I was there, <clears throat> by the way, it was, a very, it was a very moving and humbling ceremony to wash somebody's feet. That's what's so funny is everybody always washed their feet before they got there. No, everybody wanted to have really clean feet. Nobody wanted to have dirty feet. But we should have had dirty feet. That would have captured what's going on here better. People should have walked around in the yard for a couple of hours before they came. That's, that would have driven home the significance of what's happening here. But we practice feet. In all those two years that I was there, I never connected the feet washing thing we did with the crucifixion of Jesus. I never made that connection. But that's exactly what Jesus is doing. here. He's making that connection with his disciples. It's a kind of mini-drama 
of what he's about to do. How so? Well, this is how so. First of all, note this. Jesus, out of love, takes a low place to serve us. He goes low. Listen now. He goes as low as you can go, ultimately, crucifixion. But this feet washing begins that trajectory downward. Out of great love, he takes a low place to serve us. He humbles himself to become a slave so that we might have cleansing. And by washing their feet, he undermines all custom of, as it related to honor and status. <laughs> he turns the thing on his head. As we're going to see all out of his sacrificial love for us, for his disciples as they represent us. Look at verse 1. Verse 1, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, his hour had now come. He knows it's come. All through this gospel, if you've ever read the gospel of John, you run across this phrase, his hour had not yet come, his hour had not yet come. Several times. But now, here we are. There's, everything changes now. His hour has come for him to return to his father. And he's going to do it. He's going to return to his father, not by way of great pomp and circumstance, not by way of, of receiving all this glory and conquering all of his enemies in the Romans and riding on a white horse. That's not how he's going to return to his father. How is he going to return to his father? Of what he's picturing here in the feet washing. A crucifixion. Something they could not get their minds around at all. There was, there was just no category for these disciples to think in terms of Messiah, King, suffering like this. Now he's getting them ready. So look at the middle of verse 1 again. Having loved his own who were in the world he loved them to the end. Isn't that beautiful? I love that. He loved them to the end. That is, he loved them all the way to the end of his life. He loved them all the way, even into this foot washing. He loved them all the way to what the feet washing is representing. He loved them all the way to the cross, the crucifixion. In fact, he goes so low in the crucifixion this is going to be his demonstration of how much he loves his people. All the way there. And so, what does he do? In the middle of supper, Jesus gets up and begins to shock and embarrass his disciples. Look at verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Imagine this now. Big, long towel. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. <clears throat> now, picture this. Probably this is what it looked like. At the Passover, all of his disciples are lying down, reclining. This is normally how they ate usually on their left elbow and eat with their right hand on a pillow. And so their faces are pointed in, inward and their feet on the outside. So Jesus gets up, takes off his garment because he prepares himself for work, takes that towel, ties it around his waist, takes that basin, and then walks around the outside of that circle, washing all of their dirty feet while they sit there absolutely shocked 
and embarrassed. He shouldn't be doing that. Now, for us, washing feet is not embarrassing, is it? It's not shocking to us at all. I mean, we get pedicures. And we get, we, we convince our wives to massage our sore feet, don't we, guys? I mean, we have no problem with our feet. We come home, we sit down in a recliner, we prop up our feet in the middle of everything. People walk by us, we got no problem. They got no problem. Feet are up there. Not a big deal. Not so in the ancient Near East. Feet were viewed differently. <laughs> you, don't, you don't prop your feet up in a chair in Jesus' world. I watched a video of a guy from India preaching this, ser- this passage. And during the sermon, he took his Bible and he laid it on the floor and then stood back and watched the crowd. He was preaching in America. And nobody in the crowd got up and walked out. He said, in India, people would have walked out. Because you don't take the Bible, something holy, and put it down here where your feet go. It doesn't work. It doesn't match. That's altogether wrong. But for us, it's not a big deal. But for them, feet represented the lowest part of themselves. And it was customary, when you went to somebody's house, when you met them at the door, either you washed your own feet as you were coming in because they were dirty, you left your sandals out here, you came in, you washed your own feet, or your host had a slave or a servant who washed your feet for you. But no peers washed peers' feet. In other words, if I came to your house, you're not going to wash my feet. I come to your house, I ain't washing your feet. Peers don't wash one another's feet. Either you do it yourself or a slave does it, a servant does it. The menial, the most menial servant you would have had would have washed feet. This is why nobody volunteered during this feet washing. Nobody jumped up and said, Jesus, have a seat. I'll do that. No, no. You don't wash other people's feet. Slaves do that. This is all upside down. This is why they were so embarrassed by what Jesus was doing. Look at verse 8. Look at what Peter says. He represents the crowd. Or look at verse 6, first of all. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? You shouldn't be doing it. Verse 8, Peter says, you shall never wash my feet. Not only was this against custom, think of what they had seen from Jesus. They'd been with him now for three years They had seen Jesus walk on water. They had seen Jesus heal paralyzed people, raise Lazarus from the dead for heaven's sake. They'd heard Jesus say crazy things like this, I and the Father are one. They didn't know what that was all about. Before Abraham was, I am. What the heck is that? They didn't put all that together yet. This was no ordinary man, but they didn't know a whole lot beyond that. And do you remember how John begins this gospel? I bet many of you have read John chapter 1. How does John begin this gospel? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word meaning Jesus, and the Word was God. And by Him, through Him, everything was made that has been made in Him was life. The One through whom all the galaxies were created. Listen now, put this together a little bit. Let this... Drive it home to your heart. The one through whom all the galaxies were made is now the one who stoops down with a towel around his waist and washes their dirty, lowly feet. 
what the heck is that all about? They should have been shocked. What kind of Messiah is this? And again, remember what John is saying. Jesus comes to reveal God. What kind of God is this who would stoop down and wash people's dirty feet? And take the role of a slave. Who does that? We're supposed to feel the incongruence. You and I are supposed to feel the absurdity of this. We're supposed to feel the shocking nature of this. Why does Jesus go so low here? Again, as I said, because he's pointing to something that's going to take him, take him even lower. If they're shocked now, they ain't seen nothing yet. What's going to happen the next day? Look at verse 4. John tells us. He gives us a strong clue what he's doing. Verse 4, he laid aside his outer garments. That Greek word, laid aside, translated by two English words, is the same word that's found in chapter 10. Get this now, this is fascinating to me. Where, where Jesus says the good shepherd lays aside his life for the sheep. So he lays aside his garment. He lays what Jesus is doing here is symbolically showing the disciples he's going to lay aside, lay down his life for them. And the feet washing points to that. John, Jesus is acting out what's about to happen on the cross. And later on, the disciples, as Jesus says here, would look back at this feet washing and it would help them understand what the cross was all about. They would start to connect some dots. Their shock, their embarrassment here is just a little taste of what's coming. This Jesus, the one they've come to revere in love, would be beaten half to death the very next day and then nailed down on a Roman crossbeam in the most, as the most despicable, disgusting, degrading way in the world for anyone to die. I, um, I think we, sometimes we get a little off track here um, do you guys remember the, 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 the Passion of the Christ, the movie by Mel Gibson? Anybody go see that? Um, I, I watched it, and it was good in a lot of ways. But here's when I, I left the movie theater thinking, my gosh, he suffered a lot of pain. It was all about the beating and the torture. And the pain is no doubt there, but here's what I think the gospel writers want us to see. The pain should be seen in a greater picture the biggest thing, I believe, is not the pain, but the shame of it. The shame of it. The crucifixion. We talk about the death of Jesus. It's not just the death of Jesus. It's the way he died. It's really important. He died by crucifixion. He wasn't stoned to death. And the Jewish leaders didn't want him to be stoned to death later on. They wanted him to be crucified, and there was a reason why. Because they wanted him utterly, completely, totally humiliated and shown to the world to be the biggest fake that's ever lived. That's what they wanted. 
And so they want him crucified. It was utterly obscene. Have you ever thought of this? This strikes me. Listen to this. There is no other religion that has at its center a wretched, rejected man suffocating by the weight of his own naked body. He couldn't even hide behind his clothes. He didn't have any clothes on the cross. Considered less than human scum. What other religion has that at its center? That's craziness. Only one. The Christian faith. And Jesus would not have been viewed as a martyr. People would have not have looked at Jesus on the cross and said, oh, well, he's dying for a great cause. <laughs> That's not what they were thinking. That's not what crucifixion meant. Um, you guys remember, I don't know how many years ago it was. I should have looked it up, and I didn't. Um, getting lazy in my old retirement years. <clears throat> there was shown a video on um, uh, evening news, national news, several years ago when these American soldiers were in Iraq. They showed a video of an Iraqi truck dragging a U.S. soldier body down the road. Did anybody remember that video? I remember sitting there in my chair, and I had to turn away. I couldn't even look. It made my skin crawl to treat a body like that. But, but here's the thing. At least that soldier was dying for a great cause. Nobody would have looked at Jesus and thought that when he's dying. Oh, he's dying for a great cause. No, no. Jesus, my friend, is dying the death of the damned. Utter, total, complete failure. That's what crucifixion means. Nobody would have seen any good in it. The feet washing is just a little miniature of the cross that's coming. The shock and embarrassment of this is pointing to something that's going to be even so much greater. But there it is, washing feet for the lowliest of slaves. And precisely he does it. Jesus does it. He goes low so that his disciples might be cleansed in the feet washing, right? So once he, he tells them, they have this dialogue. And, and that's exactly what the cross is going to be, too. He's going to go low so that you and I can be what? Cleansed. Peter and Jesus have a dialogue about this cleansing. Look at verse 8. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon and Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Now, don't get lost in all the details here. here here's, here's what I think is the major point. Feet washing represent cleansing. They represent cleansing once and for all, the cross, and they represent continual cleansing as Christians confess their sin. But here's what I want you to get a hold of. All of this is done because of the love that takes Jesus to a low place. A low place. To put on display his love. Now, it'd be great to end the sermon right here. We could all go home and praise God, praise Jesus, and, and we should. But the passage doesn't stop there. <laughs> There's something else that follows. This kind of love does not stop with Jesus, does it? The second thing I want you to see this morning is this. 
we, out of love, are to also take the low place to serve others. We are called, our Lord calls upon us to imitate him here, to humble ourselves, to also go low, to go low, to love and serve other people. Think of it like this. If pride is the root of all kinds of evil, and I think pride is the root, perhaps the main root of all of the other sins. If that's true, then humility is the root of all kinds of good. Look at verses 12 and following. Verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you, what? Do them. Jesus' logic is pretty straightforward here, isn't it? I think you, if you're still awake, surely you've got to be. It's not even 11 o'clock yet. You're probably getting what he's saying here, aren't you? It goes like this. Jesus says, if you view me as your superior, if I'm your rabbi and Lord, and I, out of love, go low to shockingly wash your feet, then you, my servants, are called to do what? The same thing. Same thing. Go low and love other people. Serve other people. That's going to look like a whole lot of different things. But the big idea is there. Jesus makes it very clear. Verse 15. For I have given you an example that you also should, also should do just as I have done to you. It's the same idea. Jesus, it's the same idea when Jesus says... Take up your cross and follow me. So who dies on a cross in the Christian life? Two people. Begins with Jesus, passes it on to you. Take up your cross and follow me. It's the same idea Paul says in Philippians 2, that grand narrative of Paul that that drives so much of his thinking You remember what Paul says in Philippians 2? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. I want this mind to be in you, Christian, if you follow Jesus. Here's the mind I want to be in you. Who, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be used for his own advantage, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of a man, get this now, and being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Doesn't stop there. Comma. Even death on a cross. Let that mind be in you, Christian. He went low out of his love for you. Now, you go low in serving others and loving them. Imitate Jesus. The pastor, one of the pastors who influenced me the most as a Christian, lives right down the road here. What's the name of that road by Smithfield High School? Turner Road. 
turn a drive, turn a road, turn a drive. He lives right down there. His name is Lindsay Fortit. I had lunch with him <coughs> um, about a month ago at one of your fine dining establishments, the Cockeyed Rooster. <coughs> it's a good, a good place. I like going there. I like eating there. Um, Lindsay, under his ministry, he pastored a little church outside of Windsor, and under his ministry, I was called to go into the ministry. And Lindsay had a great impact on me, even though I never knew him until I moved to seminary for only about two years. But <coughs> last year, Lindsay's wife, Barbara, died. She had Alzheimer's for 10 years. Lindsay took care of her the whole time. Never, putting her, never put her in a nursing home. Ten years. Right at the end, she went in for a day or two and came back, and she died at home. That's remarkable to me. That he went low to love his wife like that. And as you know, when somebody has a disease like that, you end up doing everything for them. Everything. You go low to love another person. My wife, Dorothy, uh, Dorothy's mother, Irene, lives in Southampton County, about 40 minutes from where we live in downtown Suffolk, and she's bedridden now, and, and, and Dorothy drives out there twice a week and helps her. She's going to go this afternoon. She washes. She's in the bed. Her dad is 94, and he can't do a whole lot. He lives there with her. And so she goes out there and vacuums and, and cleans and washes clothes and bed linens and Helps her mother have bowel movements. She goes low. That's what it means sometimes, isn't it? But it takes all kinds of forms to go low to serve other people. All kinds of forms. Moms are often good, better at this than dads. Do you wash dishes? Do you clean toilets? Do you clean dirt, dirty diapers, whoever you are, men and women? Do you humble yourself and become the first person that asks for forgiveness and admits wrong in your marriage? Who pursues the other when the whole thing is all messed up? When you've gotten sideways with one another, are you typically waiting for her to humble herself and come around? I'll pray for you, honey. Or do you go low and humble yourself? Say, I was wrong too. How quick are you to be offended? I've discovered this in my long life. <laughs> People who are quick to be offended have a problem with pride. Humility enables us to be gracious and generous and to overlook a whole bunch of stuff. Not everything. Some sins are so serious, they need to be dealt with. But most of the stuff that you and I experience can be forgiven, and you move on. Are we generous, gracious people or judgmental people? Do we go low, or do we exalt ourselves? And stand above, above others and sort of live above others, you know, on that plane. And churches can be like this, too. I'll be real, real frank with you because I've been in Reformed churches for a long time, so I can speak like this. Sometimes, I'm sure hope is not like this. 
sometimes reformed tradition can produce a kind of arrogance and pride that looks down on other churches. They ain't as smart or intellectual as we are. Too bad for them. We'll pray for them. I'll be real honest with you. I think that makes Jesus sick. As much as he has loved us. You know, we say that we have grasped the grace of God in a deeper way. Then praise the Lord. Then let it change you in a deeper way. Let it transform you. A couple of, about a month, oh, a couple of months ago now, I did a funeral for a friend. Her mother was, um, whom I knew as a pastor, I retired in December, and I knew her mother for years before I retired there as a pastor. And um, her mother was very sick in a nursing home. Uh, her daughter, who was a friend, asked me to come and pray with her mother. She was dying. She had Alzheimer's as well. So I went to the nursing home, and I prayed with her and prayed with all of the family. And then several weeks later, she passed away, and they asked me to do the funeral, <coughs> um, even though I'm retired, which is fine. And I just communicated with the pastor, Westminster Ross. Is it okay? Fine, good. So I did the funeral. There was a friend. And during that whole process, she called me up one day and said, you know, Ruffin, I, we haven't done this before, so what do you charge for a funeral? Well, there's a big temptation right there. Hmm. Never done this before. Hmm, hmm. <laughs> I could come up with anything, couldn't I? I said, I don't charge anything. Most of the time I get an honorarium, almost all the time. And I gave her a range because she didn't know. And said, that's fine, good, super. I did the funeral and I got nothing. Still, I kept waiting, waiting. Well, maybe this week. Nope. I'll be real honest with you. I was angry. It was a friend. I was retired, for heaven's sake. I'm not your pastor. You paid me jack squat. And then I prepared the sermon. And I was convicted. If Jesus can wash Judas's feet, and he did, knowing what he would do, and then be crucified for me, then I can do a funeral for a friend with no pay and be okay with it. I've been reading <coughs> Tim Keller's book, if you're a PCA pastor, you have to quote Tim Keller at some point in the sermon. So I will do that. Get my quota in here. Tim Keller was a great man. Impacted a lot of lives. He should be quoted. <coughs> the book's on forgiveness. <coughs> I recommend it to you if you want to be nailed to a cross. <laughs> man, it's a convicting book. But listen to what he says. This is what, one of the things that got me. He said, our Christian churches famous for their love and graciousness to skeptics and non-believers. Are they famous, Christian churches, for their love and graciousness to skeptics and non-believers? This is what Tim says. They are not. Then he says this. Are you a professing Christian? If so, are you known by your friends and neighbors for being unusually loving, unusually generous, unusually gracious, and unusually forgiving.
If not, then perhaps this love of Christ we sing about every Sunday has not reached down very deep to really transform us deeply. Lord, I pray that it will. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we worship you this morning, this Lord's Day. We have sung about you. We've prayed to you. I've preached about you. Come and visit us now by your Spirit and transform our hearts in a deeper way. Forgive us for our unloveliness, but empower us to be different. You have the power to do it. We submit ourselves to you, O Christ. In your great name.